The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Luke 126 through 38, that's our sermon text. It's entitled, The Power of the Highest Will Overshadow You. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, That holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Couple things. First, I forgot to read the 96th Psalm. I apologize about that. Secondly, um, I was just having a talk with Brian. He grew up as a Catholic, and he always thought that the Immaculate Conception referred to Jesus. And he went, wanted to read about it, and he found out that it doesn't. The Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with Jesus. It is the Catholic's way of getting your eyes off of Jesus. The Immaculate Conception refers to Mary being born without sin. If Mary was born without sin, we do not need a Redeemer, okay? Because if he can make her without sin, he can do it for everybody, and we can just skip the whole Jesus thing. So I want you to know about the heresy of the Immaculate Conception. Yesterday, 25 December 2021, we celebrated Christmas as Christians do all over the world at this time each year. However, it is clearly evident from Scripture that Jesus was not born at this time of the year. Some falsely proclaim that Jesus was born in the springtime around the Passover. That is unmistakably wrong from the biblical text, but it is sensational and it sells well, and the person that has come up with that has sold a lot of books. The biblical narrative clearly places his birth during the fall season. Specifically, he would have been born on Yom Teruah, or the Feast of Acclamation, as is recorded in Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25. This can be easily determined from the Bible itself by first following the account set down in Luke 1 and Luke 2, and then by using the information he provides 
to search out the Old Testament to definitively place the timing of the event. To more clearly see this, you can read or watch the sermon entitled Leviticus 23, 23 through 25, The Feasts of the Lord, The Memorial of Acclamation, from the Superior Word Leviticus Sermons. There, the account is laid out to demonstrate this. This day that would have been Jesus' birth, Yom Teruah, or the Feast of Acclamation, is known by some as the Feast of Trumpets. But the Hebrew word teruah does not necessarily refer to trumpets, even if trumpets were blown. It simply means that the people were to raise a tumult of joy, meaning shouting, whooping, and yelling, and blowing trumpets, and so on. And the specific name is stated in Numbers 29, where it is called Yom Teruah, or Day of Acclamation. In Job 38, the root of teruah the word ruah is used when speaking of a shout of rejoicing at the time of creation. Here's what it says in Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, ruah, shouted for joy. This is the sense of the word and of what is to occur. Teruah can be a war cry, it can be an alarm, it can be a shout of joy, the blast of a trumpet, and so forth. In the words of Leviticus 23, it is termed Zikaron Teruah, or a memorial of acclamation. The Greek Old Testament specifically translates this day as Menemusunon Selpigon, or memorial of trumpets. But that is more of an explanation than a translation of the Hebrew. In modern Israel, the day is known as Rosh Hashanah, or the beginning of the year. But biblically, that term is not appropriate to describe the event. The redemptive calendar upon which the feasts of the Lord are given begins in the spring, not in the fall. The modern calendar used in Israel does not follow the biblical calendar that was given by the Lord for clues about the coming of Messiah. It is a problem because people in the church have mixed up the events of the feasts of the Lord so completely that almost nothing that is taught matches what the Bible actually says. It really takes a complete severing from everything that is taught today and a return to the biblical text alone to properly know what is going on and how it points to Jesus. Without this, there is a complete confusion of the mind concerning the purpose, meaning, and significance of the feasts of the Lord as detailed in Scripture. Our text verse comes from Luke chapter 2. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The reason for repeating all of this detail concerning the timing of Jesus' birth and the appropriate terminology concerning it from previous sermons is to establish a baseline for us to consider why we celebrate Christmas at this time of the year. But even before that, we should define what the term Christmas actually means. This is because folks love to find a conspiracy in everything, including what they claim is an overt connection to the Roman Catholic Mass. It is true the word is from the word that defines the Mass, 
but that doesn't imply that this is some unholy word that should never be used. The word is simply a shortened form of Christ's mass. It is found in writings as early as 1038, where it is called Christusmas. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning Christ. That comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, or Messiah. And both Messiah and Christ mean anointed. Thus, it refers to the anointed one. The word mass comes from the Latin word missa, the celebration of the Eucharist. That comes from Eucharista, or thanksgiving. It is a word found predominantly in Paul's writings, but it is also found in the book of Acts and in Revelation. The last use of it in Scripture is in Revelation chapter 7, where it says, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving or Eucharista, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Hence, one can see the word Christmas is a perfectly biblical word even if it's not actually found in the Bible. People say, well, the Trinity isn't found in the Bible, but it is perfectly described in the Bible. Therefore, the Trinity is a perfectly biblical word. It is the giving of thanks for what God has done in Christ, meaning the word Christmas. At times, the term is substituted for Xmas, something seen as derogatory and a dismissal of the name Christ, but that is also incorrect. That is a shortened form of the word Christos, which in the Greek alphabet reads with a key and a row beginning it. The Greek letter key looks like a modern X. This is not a new invention, but it actually goes back to the Middle English, where the first two letters, key and row, are seen placed in front of the word. So far, that has been a lot of information that hasn't told us anything about our sermon text, but it gives us the basis for much of what we need to know concerning why We just celebrated Christmas yesterday, except for why we celebrated it yesterday and not in the September-October time frame when Christ was born. If the birth of Christ is what we are celebrating, and if that happened in the fall, then people argue that there must be some devilish reason why we have been so misinstructed and misdirected to observe it at the end of December. And indeed, haters of everything Roman Catholic do their very best to come to this conclusion. Just type into your search bar, Pagan Origins of Christmas, and you will find every possible reason why this is not a Christ-oriented day at all. One example of this is the common saying that the Norse, Druids, and Celtics, and others, all pagan of course, observe the winter solstice at this time. Others tie it directly to the Roman feast called Saturnalia in honor of the god Saturn, which was held on 17 December, and which was later expanded to hold festivities as late as 23 December. There's a problem with these analyses, though, and that is that we are not observing Saturnalia on those dates. We are not also observing the winter solstice on the 21st of December. We are observing a thanksgiving to Christ... On 25 December, the timing of the events is close, and there's a reason for that, just as there is a reason that the Feast of Passover was at the same general time as the spring equinox, which occurs around March 20th of each year. Not unsurprisingly, this was also a time of pagan observances. The time of year, this particular time of year, is one of renewal and new hope as the long winter comes to a close. 
To say that Christians are observing the equinox or a pagan ritual at this time is shallow, and it is no different than saying that Christians are observing the winter solstice in some pagan fashion. It is important to not make stuff up that is without any basis in reality, but rather we are to instead seek out the knowledge of God in Christ and find out why we observe the things we do. And that is what we do when we search out the Word of God. And so, having just noted that the timing of the Passover was given by God for a reason, we should think on what that is. It is the timing in the annual calendar that comes at the time when Christ died, was buried, and when he was resurrected. The spring is the perfect time for this to occur. Just as the season looks to the renewal of life, and the, the, so the resurrection of Christ looks to it as well. There is new life to be found for every believer who comes to him based on faith in what occurred at that time. Yes, the exact timing of what many call Easter is not always the same as the day that the Jews observe the Passover, even though they do occur at the same time occasionally. But the calendars that we use are not the same either. In order to accommodate the calendar, and thus the life cycle of those under that different calendar, a specific dating of the observance was made for the Christian calendar. Likewise, the timing of Christmas is a time of thanksgiving for what God has done at this time of the year when the nights are the longest and the world seems at its darkest. But what does that timing have to do with the Holy One of God? The answer is so simple and so easily determined that it is very sad that people spend so much time trying to connect the day to pagan festivals instead of just thinking the matter through. The birth of Jesus Christ from the womb occurred on the day of Yom Teruah in the fall time. Armed with that knowledge, all we need to do is backdate from there 280 plus or minus days, which is the approximate time for human gestation. From there, we come up with approximately 25 December. This is the same approximate time that the Feast of Dedication mentioned in John 10 verse 22 was observed. Today, Jews call that Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. Like the timing of the Passover and first fruits, and the timing of Good Friday and Resurrection Day, also known as Easter, which do not always coincide, but which do from time to time, the Feast of Dedication and Christmas do not always coincide, but they will from time to time. This happens when the two calendars, the Hebrew and the Christian, merge. Is everybody seeing this? We do not use the Hebrew calendar, and so we set specific days in our calendar to observe every single year. The Hebrew calendar is a rotating calendar, and it's impossible to do that unless we used that calendar. That is why these things are set on specific days. We don't know who first sat down and did the calculation for fixing what we today call Christmas, but someone did. He did so to align with 25 December not 17 or 21 December. And he did so not to align with the pagan festival, but it was surely to align with the birth of Christ. However, it was not from the womb, but in the womb. This one who explicitly calls himself the light of the world in John 8:12, and again in John 9, 5, is the one who came at the darkest time of the year, thus fulfilling a pattern based on the words of John. John 3, 19, and this is condemnation, 
that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The Feast of Dedication, also known extra-biblically as the Festival of Lights, was celebrated by the Jews at this time of year as a foreshadowing of the true light that would come into the world at the darkest of times. It is he that would dedicate God's true temple and sanctify it as holy to the Lord. One thing is for certain, despite what modern society tries so desperately to hide, the true birth of a person is the day that he or she is conceived. That is why the term in the womb is called human gestation. A human has come to exist, and that child is being prepared in the womb to survive outside of the womb. The Koreans actually get this. They consider a year in the womb as being counted toward their actual age. Thus, each person is considered a year old at birth. Then they add a new year onto their age each year on New Year's Day. Despite this, their actual birthday is still considered a day of celebration of their birth. That's just a cute squiggle for your brain. It has nothing to do with the biblical narrative, but it reveals a truth that they get. They get it, whereas the hateful left dismiss any such notion as completely unfounded. In them, we can say in gumpish fashion, stupid is as stupid believes. And it is certain that they don't actually believe this, but they believe the lie outwardly so that they can continue to try to feel good about their wickedness. To understand this thinking, take time to read Romans chapter 1 today. Paul explains it exactingly. Regardless of that, Now that we have all of this wonderful background information to understand the why and the when of what occurred, we can return to Luke and marvel at what God has done in Christ at this time of the year. Mary, being a girl who understood how such things work, asked the angel who came to her, how can this be, since I do not know a man? The question was not one lacking faith. She simply didn't get it. How could this be? Her words indicate that she surely understood the whole thing about having babies, and what she understood did not include the thought of virgins having them. As such, the angel spoke to her words that are more incredible than anything else that had ever been heard by human ears, ever. If you think of the enormity of what he says, it is literally impossible to grasp the totality of it. He began his words saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Exactly what this means must be determined from a careful analysis of all of the rest of Scripture. In such an analysis, it is perfectly evident that the Holy Spirit is God. This is completely obvious, and it is undeniable when properly looked into. We did a 10-part series on doctrine before we started into the book of Deuteronomy. One sermon from that series carefully evaluates the doctrine of the Trinity— It is a doctrine that is manifestly clear. God is three persons in one essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, to say that the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary is to say that the essence of God, as revealed in the person of the Holy Spirit, would come upon Mary. This is the same person in the Godhead that hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 verse 2 and who brought the chaos into order. It is also the same person in the Godhead that is said to be the source of life for all things. From Psalm 104, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. 
What is said to Mary, however, does not speak at all of the creation of life. Rather, it speaks of the issuance of life. The son born to Eve in her union with Adam was not a creation, but was rather a product of who they were as beings. Thus, the term conceive is used. The Greek word that defines conception, not creation, is what was used concerning Christ in Luke 1.31. It is the word sulumbano, a compound word coming from sun, meaning with or together, and lambano, meaning to receive. There is the sense of life issuing from both Mary and the Holy Spirit, just as there is life from the union of a man and a woman. Creation is excluded in the thought. Rather, the word beget is what defines what occurred. The union of two issuing forth into a new being. In this case, and because of who the two are, we have something unique in all of the universe, both temporal and physical. The pattern was set forth on the first page of the Bible, where all life is said to reproduce after its own kind. As such, the Father is God. The issuance is God. The mother is a human being. The issuance is a human. As the child is a male, the issuance is the God-man, Christ, who is Jesus. Again, the word creation cannot be used in the explanation of what occurred. To do so will introduce heresy into what is said. Life begetting life is what occurred. There is human life that was originally created, but there is the divine life which is uncreated. Without explaining how it happened, Paul explains that it did, in fact, happen. From 1 Timothy 3, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. God was manifested in the flesh. This is what we call the incarnation. God did not become a man, as if the infinite became finite. That is a logical contradiction and an impossibility. Rather, God united with humanity. The infinite has united with the finite. It is something both non-contradictory and completely possible. John, with failing human words, expresses what occurred from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And from John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What came forth was flesh, because He came through humanity. But He is also begotten of the Father. As such, He bears a glory that extends beyond that of humanity even to the glory of God, because he was there before flesh existed. Paul refers to this at several times and in various ways, such as 2 Corinthians 4. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Likewise, John opens his first epistle with this thought from 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This concept continued to be explained to Mary with the next words of the angel, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Here the term power is used to describe the highest. In other words, the one who is most high is also the most powerful. They are not two things, but one. As such, it makes the words of Luke 1.32 more understandable. There, the angel, using the same word, said he will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest. As such, the same thing that makes a child receive the paternal nature of a man is what makes Christ receive the paternal nature of the highest. Again, Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What God possesses because of who he is is then revealed through the Son because of who he is. He has received the paternal nature of the highest, and thus Christ possesses the power of God and the wisdom of God. And once again, Paul tells us of what Christ is doing through this dual nature of Jesus, who is the Christ, when he says the following, 2 Corinthians 5, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God didn't just send a man to reconcile the world to himself, such as, Elijah, I want you to be the one who will reconcile fallen man to me. Obviously, that wouldn't have worked because Elijah was born of fallen man. He received the sin of Adam. But more, God didn't create a new man like Adam and say, I'm sending you to reconcile the world to me. That wouldn't have worked because that man would have no knowledge of good and evil. As such, he would not be a suitable substitute for fallen man. But once he gained that knowledge, he would be fallen just as Adam fell. It is the inevitable outcome of gaining that knowledge. Rather, God took care of the matter all by himself. The one with infinite knowledge of all things, God, was in Christ. As such, he was capable of reconciling the world to himself. The marvel, the absolute stunning and incredible nature of what God has done is beyond our ability to actually grasp We fight with words in order to explain what God has done, but we are always just one misspoken word away from heresy. Or we provide words that are insufficient to bring the mind to the state of where it should be in relation to the knowledge of how God did it. But the words do generally tell us what occurred and what it means, even if we cannot properly and fully grasp or state the extent of what happened. As such, we come to the next words of the angel to Mary, which are, Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Mary was a physical human being born who bore the DNA of her parents. Her DNA would have transmitted on from her to Jesus. This isn't only logical, it is to be inferred from those verses that say that Jesus is the offspring of David. He is the seed of David and so on. This is also perfectly understood from the genealogies recorded in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3. If this were not true, and if God created Jesus immediately and directly in the womb of Mary, that's a heresy known as Valentinianism, then Jesus would be a created, not a begotten being. But this was not the case. However, what is it that completed the human nature of Jesus? How did that come about? The Bible does not tell us. It simply states that Jesus was born and that no human father was involved in the process. That leaves us with a mystery at this time. But it did occur. Somehow, God clicked the tumblers of the building blocks of Jesus' humanity in the womb of Mary to have this incredible framework form into a human being. And it came about. And even though we don't know how this occurred, the record testifies to the fact that it did happen. And to leave Mary, and thus us who have been told this story with a sufficient, albeit incomplete, explanation for how it occurred, the angel said to her, For with God, nothing will be impossible. At this time, and maybe forever, we do not have all of the information to know what transpired in the womb of Mary. At least I don't, and I don't think anyone has ever suitably explained it either. But we are armed with the words of the text, and we are asked to believe that the seemingly impossible was possible, because God is in the details. With this knowledge, we can know that on that Christmas day, over 2,000 years ago, God united with humanity, and then the offspring of that union developed into a child who was born from the womb and into the world. The record of his birth, his life, and the works that he accomplished is sufficiently detailed in the four Gospels to give us all that we need to know in order to make an informed decision about who is this man. He is the Son of the Highest who possesses all of the power of heaven and earth. He is the Son of God who bears his holiness, his grace, his love, and his mercy. He is also the judge who will preside over all mankind because he is the incarnate word of God who reveals and expresses the unseen God to us. What God spoke through the prophets is more fully realized in Christ. Where the prophets might say, judgment is coming, God in Christ says, judgment is come. And be sure, judgment is also coming, but it is coming because it has already come. From John 12, Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Judgment has come through the death of the humanity of Jesus. As we already saw, God did not become a man and God did not die on the cross of Calvary. Rather, Jesus, the man, who is also fully God, died on the cross. But God in Christ did not die. When Jesus died, the world was judged. Everything necessary for all of judgment, for all of human history, was judged 
at that moment, everything from the fall of Adam until the last breath of the last man that will ever take place on this earth was judged at that moment. Jesus Christ has the power to judge. He has the authority to judge, and he has the right to judge it all. It doesn't matter one diddly if we like that or if we don't like it. It doesn't matter one smidgen if we believe it or not. And it doesn't matter doodly squat what we think. Because what God has done in this matter does not include us in the process. Rather, it includes us in the results of the process. God in Christ did the work, and he did it for us. The incarnation was for us. The circumcision on the eighth day was for us. The temptations he faced were for us. The long walks along the paths, trails, and highways of Israel were for us. The reviling accusations, the jeers, the sneers, and the being shunned by his own people, it was all for us. And when Jesus was betrayed, mocked, disowned by his people, scourged and crucified, it was for us. There is nothing in what God did in Christ Jesus that filled a need in him. He is the ruler of this universe and the one who directs all things according to his wisdom. And yet, he did what he did for us. For whatever incomprehensible reason, he decided that this thing that he would do in Christ was of value. David, even before the cross, asked of the Lord the most honest question that he could put forth. In fact, he was so curious about the matter that he repeated it in two Psalms, Psalm 8 and Psalm 144. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? David just wasn't getting it. Lord, why do you even bother with us? He knew he did, and he knew that there was a purpose for it, but he just couldn't fathom what that purpose could be. Now, here we are on the other side of the cross. We have seen what God was willing to go through for us, and we consistently fail to ask that same question, even now when it is infinitely more appropriate to ask, Lord, why did you ever do what you did for people like us? This is why the Lord has the right to judge all things. It is because he did it. And that judgment can go in only one of two directions. It will be imputed to us because God already judged us in Jesus Christ, or it will be a judgment against us because we have failed to receive what God has done in Christ. God in Christ is the measure. He is the standard. He is where we must find ourselves, or we will be forever separated from him. The choice is ours because a bit over 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit came upon a young virgin and the power of the highest overshadowed her. When that happened, the Holy One who was born from this event was and is called the Son of God. What is Christmas Day? It is the celebration of and the giving thanks for that which is simply incredible. It is a day of contemplating the infinite love of God which is found in the giving of a son to the people of the world. Through this, we can experience the divine, not in some ethereal way, but in a real and personal way. The life that is Christ Jesus is essentially the same life that now quickens us, but it is realized in a different way. We are not begotten of humanity and deity as Christ was. 
thus becoming the God-man. We are humans who are born of God through an act of faith in what he did for us. As this is so, we are now called children of God. We are now granted an inheritance that is incorruptible and eternal in nature, and we have the everlasting hope of paradise restored for us, plus. The plus is Jesus. Adam couldn't have fathomed what the Lord would do to bring him back to himself. David pondered why he was attentive to us at all, and he could find no suitable answer. We, on the other hand, do know what extent God would go to to make it possible. But our knowing only makes what he did all the more difficult to grasp. Surely, O God, what is man that you are mindful of him? We may never fully know, but we have eternity in his presence to try and find it out. Thank God for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank God for the child of Christmas, who is also the lamb who was slain. Yes, thank God for Jesus Christ. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. This is what God did for us by uniting with human flesh. And all of those imperfect people, man, they're listed from Adam all the way down, and the record of their lives is given in many cases. Many of them were adulterers. Many of them were murderers. We had a prostitute in the line. We had a man that slept with his own daughter in the line. We had another guy that slept with his own two daughters, and both of them are in the line. We've got all kinds of things going on in Scripture, pointing to the fact that we are fallen, we are messed up, and we need help. And God sent Christ Jesus to resolve that problem. Through all that baggage of all of those countless years, here comes God in Christ, uniting with humanity in the womb of a woman, a virgin. And she bore that child, and he lived under the law that he gave to his people. The man who does the things of this law will live. And of course, we have the record of that. None of them did because they're all dead. They're all in their grave, every one of them, with the exception of one that was taken out. Elijah, we know that, but he's going to come back and die as well. And then there's one exception to that in the person of Jesus, born under the law, born without sin, and the record of the Gospels testifies that he lived perfectly without ever sinning. Thus, he is both capable and he is qualified to take the burden of the law away from us, the burden of the sin away from us. And how did he do it? By giving his life up in exchange for our baggage. What a great God to do this for us. I can't even comprehend it. I can't even imagine it. Why? What is it of value? I, sometimes I get angry at my wife or my kids or my dogs, and I go into the mirror and I say, I'm just such a corrupt person. I'm so gross. And yet Christ would do this for somebody like me. And, you know, we all measure ourselves against everybody else, so I'm better than everybody else, and yet I know I'm gross, right? This is, this is God in Christ. This is the love of God that is found in him. She agrees for sure. So the gospel is, if you have never heard it properly given to you, it's so simple that Paul calls it a stumbling block. And a stumbling block is not this big thing that's in your way. That's not a stumbling block because you stop and you walk around it and you keep going. A stumbling block is that teeny little bit of concrete that lifted up over the winter or from the oak. And it's just up enough where you stumble over it and you fall and you're bleeding all over the place. The gospel is that Christ came and he died for our sins. 
Christ was buried. Christ rose again. That's all that God asks you to believe is that simple gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. And he says that if you will believe that, that I have done this for you, I will seal you with my Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He calls it a guarantee for the promise of the purchased redemption. A guarantee. God does not make mistakes. He knows the future. No, you cannot lose your salvation. God does not lie. He has made a guarantee. He will not revoke it. He asks you to believe, and it is done. And then after that, he asks you to live for him. But your faithlessness does not negate his faithfulness. And that's the wonder of God in Christ. You are saved, and you will be saved. Please call on Jesus today and accept the simple gospel. Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 49. It's verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant. He doesn't say created me in the womb. He formed him in the womb. To bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Everywhere people call on the name of Jesus because it is the only name worth calling on. God has done it. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Upon hearing the news of what would happen to her, Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. If you are the redeemed of the Lord, you can be assured that whatever comes your way from moment to moment is already known to God. As surely as he had planned and purposed for Mary to be the mother of Jesus, he knows what is in store for you as well. And so through the good and through the bad in the year to come, be of the mind that you will respond according to the words of Mary. Let it be to me according to your word, and he will see you through to a good end, even if things are rocky along the way. My friend Isabella sent me a note recently. She was so proud of her granddaughter. She said, my 10-year-old granddaughter, Lily, wrote her first poem. It is a great poem, and I'd like to read it to you right now. She said, Christmas is fun. Gifts are nice. But the best gift of all is Jesus Christ. That's a 10-year-old that knows where she's headed. Praise God for Jesus. Next week is Deuteronomy 29, 1 through 9. Moses has something he wants to address. It's entitled, I have led you 40 years in this wilderness. That'll be our 84th Deuteronomy sermon. Good stuff. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He sent his own son into the world to reconcile you to himself. Remember the enormity of what that means each day of your life and then follow him and trust him as he continues to do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? All right, I've got a uh, hopefully a simple question for you. Then I say this because there are a lot of ex-Catholics here and I tell you what, ex-Catholics usually know this, okay? What is the Latin name of the song Mary speaks out in Luke 1, and what does that word mean? No, that's the Lamb of God. The Latin name of the song that Mary speaks out, and what does it mean? See, I made it as what? The Magnificat. It's the Magnificat, and it means 
magnifies, or succinctly, my soul magnifies the Lord, the Magnificat, okay? I'm sorry nobody gets this. Corvette car, I'm sorry, you could have had this. This could have been yours. <laughs> All right, I got a poem, and we are going to take communion, and we'll be done. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Unto us a child is born, a time to rejoice and not to mourn. Unto us a son is given, the one to lead us from death to a living. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Every eye will see him. Every soul will be his beholder. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom's realm to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, he at the helm, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will perform this. And his name will be called Wonderful. The counselor and mighty God is he. Everlasting father, prince of peace, pure and white as wool, of the increase of his government and peace, no end shall we see. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people forever told, the wondrous story, the birth of a boy. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, it is he, who is Christ the Lord, to whom heaven's hosts obey. The Messiah has come, and now you may go and see. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, a glorious view, the Christmas child whom our heavenly Father bestows. A child like no other has come to dwell among us. He shall lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And his name is called out. His name is Jesus. Come and of the heavenly child partake. He is God's gift and heaven's treasure. He is Emmanuel. God with us, and he bestows upon us grace without measure, the Christmas child, our glorious Lord, Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glory of God, which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for what you were willing to do for us. Whatever you see in us, I don't see it, but you do. You see the value and you did the thing. And all we can do forever and ever and ever for all of eternity as we are in your presence is to hail the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins and to call on the exalted name of Jesus from moment to moment, reveling in what you have done for us. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for him. Thank you for what you have done through him. And we praise you endlessly forever and ever for our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.